The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. Podcast focus on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle, and this is the Structural Engineering Channel podcast. I'm flying solo today for this episode, and I'll be talking to Annie Cow, Vice President of Engineering at Simpson StrongTie. She is responsible for engineering strategy, management, and innovation across all product lines at Simpson StrongTie. We will be talking to her about innovation and product testing and engineering and touch on some of the latest advancements in construction technology. Let's jump into our conversation this week. Addie, welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. In your own words, can you please tell our listeners a little more about what you do at uh, Simpson Strong Tie? I'm the vice president of engineering at Simpson Strong Tie. I've had this role for about two years, and it's been just a really exciting place to be. So in my role, I kind of oversee the engineering operations for North America. And so that consists of our R&D lab, our R&D group. It consists of our test labs. I also work closely with our branch locations where we have field engineers who go out and work with architects, engineers, and building officials. And so we have kind of three main missions. We're looking to innovate new products, new solutions, new applications. We're looking to test the heck out of those products and applications, both kind of on the component side and looking at it as a whole building system because we have some really unique infrastructure to be able to do that in our test labs. And also to support all of those solutions. So be that in the field or in the office, online, over the phone, we just want to provide kind of excellent technical support. And so being able to, in my role, support my teams doing all of those things excellently and helping them get the resources or make the connections to enable them to do so. I wanted to jump into that a little more later on because you guys got so many different aspects to it. I know you were included in the Girl Geek X list of top 60 women leading engineering teams. Congratulations on that. Uh, What an honor. What a privilege. Thank you. What would you say makes a good engineering leader? Such a good question, because I think there's so many different leadership styles out there. But first of all, it was an amazing honor to be included on a list of just incredible engineers when you go through and look at the accomplishments of that group, who just happened to all be female, and seeing kind of all the different career paths that they've taken to get there. I think for myself as an engineering leader, I have really approached my role as from a point of service, actually. How can I be of service to my teams and how can I help them do their job better? And I think I found that to be a real hallmark of great engineering managers is that they manage to grow and challenge their teams and really develop new capabilities in them that Sometimes people just can't do themselves or they don't see, you know, the opportunities or the path. So being really able to provide the opportunities for your teams to grow and also advocate for your teams in the areas that that you think that they need, be that 
financially or, you know, in partnerships with other groups or just being able to um, open doors for them so that they can kind of take their amazing selves and go forth. Because on engineering teams, you tend to work with really, really smart, capable people. And so it's not about you doing the work for them. It's about just making that path clear so that they can go out and, you know, kill it in what they do every day. I think I've heard that termed uh, servant leadership, and that's the one I definitely agree with too. And I definitely see that in uh, great engineering leaders that I've seen it. When you move up to that role, it, it is less about you're not in charge. They're not working for you. It's kind of the opposite. You're working for them. It's how, how do you get your team to, like you were saying, they all have their superpowers. How do you not get in their way? How do you let them loose and, and do what they do best? So that's great to hear. You're involved in the research and development sector of Simpson Strong Tie. Can you tell our listeners uh, what your involvement is with this uh, research? I know it's not your typical structural engineering role that most students find, but so could you go into a little more detail about that? The research and development aspect of what we do at Simpson Strong Tie was one of the tools for me when I was kind of considering different career paths, because I started out as a consulting structural engineer in Southern California and was just really interested to what else you could do with this degree, you know, in structural engineering. And so the fact that you have companies like Simpson who are coming out with products that then will get specified and used and that those products can make a real difference, you know, in a building, be that that you can help change the construction type or the construction timeline or just give different options. What we're really passionate here at Simpson is how can we help come up with solutions to improve the building process. And we always go back to kind of our company mission, right? How do we help people build safer, stronger structures? And so we've been doing that in wood construction for a long time with connectors and fasteners, and then kind of a little bit more recently in the commercial space with structural steel and concrete anchorage and concrete repair. And so when we're going through and looking at products to develop, it's kind of two parts. So there's like the new product part of it, and then there's like the new application part of it. You can take something that already exists and use it in different application, like through testing, to really see how it could benefit. It always reminds me of the story of like how they developed uh, post-it notes. It was like an adhesive that 3M had come up with, and everyone was like, well, it's not sticky enough to do anything. What should we do with it? And then an engineer or a product manager was like, oh, if I put it in paper, it's like removable. It's so great. Obviously, everyone knows how successful post-it notes are. And so we think about that quite a bit at Simpson as well. Is there a product that we have that we could use in a different application to really improve how things are put together. We have a lot of projects that are product-based and a lot of projects are application-based, which is really where our test labs come in to be able to analyze and show the proof that something actually will work in the application that we're, that we're looking for it. For new product ideas, a lot of them happen organically. We get great ideas actually from our customer base as well. There's a place on our website, strontai.com, where you can submit new product ideas. So there are folks who have already patented ideas that will come to us at Simpson, or they will uh, come to us and we are able to help them get a patent or our own employees, both in the engineering department, sales, manufacturing. We have kind of great pipelines and a real culture, I think, of encouraging folks to think about what problem can we solve and is there a product or a different application of a product that can help solve it. And so we just have a whole pipeline of R&D projects that run the gamut across all of our different, what we call product segments, in order to 
kind of help deliver on that need. And so we do a lot of both that research and development and discovery and then company by all that testing. As a follow-up to that, is that kind of where they basically go into the labs and test the strength of these connectors? Like how much of it is uh, testing? I feel like that, that would be the fun part when you're like breaking stuff in, in the lab. How much is it of that? Breaking stuff is the absolute best part. It's interesting because testing is also cost money and it takes time, right? And so depending on if it's just a small connector, um, we're very good at being able to manufacture like a prototype quickly and test it. But we've really been moving into bigger systems. We have what we call our lateral systems line that has steel frames. We have multi-story, you know, rod systems. We have our prefabricated strong wall line. And so for a lot of our analysis, we use a lot of FEA. So really trying to do some, you know, predictive design and behavior so that when we do go out and test, we've already kind of worked out a lot of the kinks. And so we've developed a really amazing kind of FEA infrastructure to support all of our lines and being able to model the installation of not only metal products, but, you know, into concrete or into wood. We have some geniuses here to really enable that and make it so we can actually help shorten that product development cycle. So what's really important to us too is how quickly, once we identify a need, can we get a product to market and in the hands of the contractor so that they can see the improvements. And so anything that we can do to help shorten the cycle and and look at as many different variations as possible is a unique combination, I think, of FEA modeling and testing kind of verification in the lab. I know there's always new products coming out from you guys. That obviously requires a lot of innovation. I was curious about in terms of company culture, because uh, you're in charge of or responsible for, you know, the innovation across all the product lines at Simpson Strongside. What does that entail? Maybe is it a company culture thing that you guys use or are there any specifics to that? Could you go into more detail on how you guys are so innovative? I would say innovation is in our DNA. So Barkley Simpson, who was our founder, he had these like, I think he called them the nine principles of doing business, but we've actually turned them into our nine guiding principles for everything that we do. And one of those principles is risk-taking innovation. So really thinking about not only in engineering, but on the manufacturing floor, you know, for the sales team, for our inside sales, like just anyone at, in any group at any level at Simpson should always be thinking about how we can be innovative. I think we're really fortunate in engineering in that we have the ability to really apply that when it comes to products, but everyone in Simpson is kind of responsible for the success of our company. And so where we get a lot of ideas from is actually from a manufacturing line. Someone is seeing how we're putting something together and thinking, why don't we do it this way? Or why don't we lay out the parts in a different way to save steel? Or you know, if we eliminated these holes that we'd be able to still get the same strength because these are just kind of duplicative. Being able to get that feedback, I think, from so many different steps along the process. I mean, the sales team, which is another huge source of innovation for us at Simpson, is something that we try to talk about quite a bit as one of our core values, because we just want to constantly remind ourselves that we want to be innovative, right? Coming up with new ideas, but also that not all of those ideas are going to work. So the risk-taking part of it is, you know, being okay with failure, but the failure really is like, well, what lesson did we learn, right? Like nothing is a failure if there are lessons learned from it and you can apply that for the next time. The failure is if you do something and then you make the same mistake, like again and again and again. And so we've just got some great procedures in place as well to help us not only on the quality side, but also on the innovation side to make sure that we are 
kind of constantly moving forward. And I think that's why you see us as a company. We've just grown tremendously. This is our 65th year in business this year. And we, I think, have managed to evolve because of that focus and dedication and culture around being innovative. I also like to touch upon the, the product testing and training that's done at Simpson Strong Tie. I wanted to ask this question mainly because I think like what you were saying before, different career paths. What could fresh graduates or engineers that are looking for different career paths, what is it like in doing product testing and the training that you guys do at Simpson Strong Tie? For anyone who's graduated with a structural engineering degree and trying to figure out this different path, I mean, consulting engineering is, you know, kind of a really clear path. And that was one that I took. And I know that you took as well, Matt, but being able to just think about that expertise, right? Understanding how materials work and how things interact and being able to look at a setup and, you know, predict its behavior because you understand the forces at work and and the different materials at work. That's, we use so much of that structural engineering expertise when it comes to the testing and kind of go beyond that because a lot of the testing is the analysis too and being able to understand their results and being able to draw some kind of clear scientific conclusions from the data set. My experience, structural engineers are so good at understanding the details, but also the big picture. Like you have to, right? If you're trying to think of an entire building as well as every single little connection. And so I believe that somebody with a passion for structural engineering would really find themselves at home in testing because it enables you to to get kind of dirty in the details with actually how some of those capacities are generated, right? When you're reading the code and it tells you that a steel beam has these properties and this capacity, and this is what it does, but then you have these load combinations that tell you that you have to take 0.9 of this or, you know, 1.4 of that. And testing, I think, gives you a real insight into why those limits are in place, because you see these coefficient of variance, you see how you can test the same exact product in five different pieces of wood and get five different failure modes, and how all of these safety factors and other considerations really get codified in order to give guidelines to engineers on how they can kind of safely design buildings within capacity limits that make sense. We're always looking at being able to provide as much relevant data as we can to the design community so that folks can make the most educated engineering decisions about what can be used. And where I've seen that that has come in really, really great use is for a lot of the full-scale application testing that we're doing for products that fall outside the building code and concrete repair and using um, fiber reinforced polymers is kind of one of those areas. So we did some really cool 20-foot tall concrete column testing at our Stockton lab, which is our Tygill lab facility, where we only wrapped the FRP fabric around three sizes of columns because there was an existing building down in Southern California where the building was right up against another one. So you couldn't actually wrap the whole column the way that the you know design guides show you. And so we were able to run testing, forget how many different tests we ran, it was probably in the neighborhood of five to 10, look at the different modes and then be able to go back and work with the engineer to provide, you know, the design guidelines for that kind of application that they were then able to submit to a state agency and move forward and be able to do a design that is innovative because it's cutting edge, you know, there's not a lot of other information. And there's a great saying we have at Simpson that, you know, one test is worth a thousand expert opinions. And so we can do a bunch of analysis, but once you test it, then you really know 
how something will perform out there. And I think, you know, back to your original question, that's the huge value of structural engineers is being able to talk about and predict and give our best guidance, right, on how something is going to behave when it sees kind of different loads that we know Mother Nature can throw at a building. Yeah, it seems really uh, innovative. And uh, like what you guys were doing in terms of support, too, where there's a lot of in-field conditions or maybe just conditions whenever someone's designing a building that you've never run into this before. Maybe uh, the city, the plan checkers, they have a comment that's kind of like, well, it's a good comment. I don't know what for this condition. And that's where you guys come in because you basically have all of the like the test data that you guys have. And you can definitely use that to support. Maybe you might have a letter or something that, oh, yeah, we've run into this or we've never run into this before. Let's do some digging or some testing. I was going to say, in 65 years, we have run into a lot of interesting situations. And we really do have a treasure trove of a test database. And engineers really, you know, they call our technical support line. And our engineers are kind of ready to get whatever supporting information we can to support an application. That's the fun stuff, too, you know, trying to help unravel the puzzle sometimes of how a building will react in different circumstances. So in 2021, it's been an exciting year for construction technology. What are some of the latest developments in construction technology that have a direct impact in the structural engineering industry? We're just seeing the constant adoption of digital tools in construction. I mean, some, I think I watched a video of like a robot that will go around the building and do like the punch card for you. So, I mean, just like so automation, right, using artificial intelligence. I mean, construction, I think, is kind of notorious for adopting technology at a much slower rate than any other industry. I saw a graphic once that showed like agriculture adopts technology like this, construction adopts technology like this, you know, kind of flat. It's interesting because I think that just means there's there's this huge opportunity, I think, to use so much more technology when it comes to our industry and being able to gain a lot of efficiencies, gain capabilities that we just traditionally haven't used, maybe because, I mean, the nature of the work being so, you know, it's on site based, that the ability to bring that technology to these sites hasn't been there in the past. And now you just, and it's so easy to access technology. So when you're thinking about the job sites, and so what we've been doing quite a bit at Simpson is how can we provide even more digital tools to enable the construction? We have a, a division of building technology that is looking at how can we work with builders, contractors to help them actually in the planning phase to be able to really speed up the actual construction phase because are there things that you can panelize? Are there, you know, options on the building that you can incorporate that then translates directly into building plans? Is there more kind of 3D, you know, building information modeling that you can do that enables a contractor to come up with the material list that they can just bring to a distributor and be able to purchase exactly the materials that they need. And so really looking to see how we can use kind of the expertise that we have and our ability to develop tools like that for our customers who are telling us that they need more and more digital solutions to stay competitive and to stay viable in their industry. And that they've trusted us for the physical product for so long that we think that there's a huge opportunity for us to provide those services as well. Just hearing, I think, how um, our customers are wanting and needing technology and being able to either connect them with that technology or deliver it for them um, by developing it in-house. We've seen that just on the kind of the contractor side and on the engineering specifier side. We've been trying to evolve our kind of famous catalog 
into a digital form for quite some time now. So there are folks who really love opening the Simpson catalog and flipping through and they know exactly how to get there. Or we have a whole series of web applications on our website where if you need to know which hanger to choose, you can go in, you can choose what type of hanger is it? You know, what's going in the hanger? What's the hanger going to get on? Does it have a slope? Does it have a skew? And then it'll spit out for you actually the best solution at the lowest installed cost for that application. And so that's instead of going through maybe 50 pages of hanger in the hanger catalog in order to figure out what you need. So again, just trying to make it easier to do the specification part of it. That's where we're really passionate about kind of delivering technology tools that just help improve all kinds of steps of the process along the way for all the people that we consider customers, which are both engineers and the contractors and the end users. At least from the engineering side, I know like, you know, this year, a lot of us were working from home. I've seen a lot of people go digital because if you're going to work from home, you either had to drag all of your books at home or you're going to find an online resource. And a lot of people I noticed were just like, oh, I'm just going to go look it up online. So I know even adjusting to like the COVID situation and how people's workflows have changed, I'm sure a lot more people have gotten used to going more digital in terms of their paperwork and collaborating. That's something that Simpson Strong Ties uh, basically adapting to because it's always your focus on how you can help your customers and the workflows. I think you're bringing up a really great point too, just about like almost like a generational preference shift, right? As like more and more folks who just grew up, who had like digital childhoods grow up and you know, start entering the workforce. Millennials are turning 40. And so they're just constituting a larger and larger percentage of the workforce and how they work is so different than previous generations. And how can companies make sure to respond and have an interface that feels comfortable and makes sense? To the different working styles. Because when we're using Bluebeam, you know, so I use Bluebeam a lot. I do a lot of my details on Bluebeam. And, you know, more senior engineers would do some debating about, we still like to do hand sketches on paper because they could do it faster. You can sketch it up. But then once I figured out all the shortcuts and whatnot, it's, I could do something to scale really quickly. I would debate that I could do it faster than hand sketching and make it look prettier <laughs> on Bluebeam than hand sketching. And then, Hopefully I won during COVID when everyone was working online. Like I wasn't seeing too many scans of people sending sketches. <laughs> it's adaptions. That's a great point. It's so funny because I'm totally a hand sketch person myself. Yeah, that was just funny just because it was like, oh, I love using Bluebeam, but I can see the all of my hand sketches are pretty first grade level when I do hand sketches. <laughs> when I need something in like five seconds. Okay, I will crank out the sketchbook. I did want to ask about uh, seismic retrofitting. You know, that's important in structural engineering. Could you give us an update maybe on seismic retrofitting, especially in California, is, is so important in structural engineering? You can look at just the horrible condo collapse in Florida, right? I mean, you had a 40-year-old concrete building that, you know, people recognized needed to be repaired and obviously didn't happen in that time frame. And you had this terrible disaster. So that's kind of like the absolute worst case scenario of building that needed to be repaired and went beyond its time. And the interesting thing is, I think you have a lot of jurisdictions in California who have already recognized this, particularly because we have the seismic earthquake threat on the West Coast and being able to recognize that the building methods that were so common in the 60s and 70s, which make up such a huge percentage of the buildings in California are really at risk because of the design methodologies at the time. And you put that with the 
frequency than was it the maximum credible earthquake that you expect to see in the area, and you just know that's not a good mix. We've been really passionate at Simpson both around the product development side and the education side when it comes to seismic retrofit, because we've known, I guess, before, you know, this, this really huge public disaster that happened, just what's at risk by not going forward and kind of spending, uh, making the investment now, you know, to upgrade the structural integrity of these buildings before we do see this earthquake. So Dr. Lucy Jones has this great saying, you know, we don't know, it's not a question of if, you know, this next major earthquake happens, it's, it's when. And so since we have the luxury of knowing that we expect these events to happen and that we have the time now to be able to do it and seeing cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles enact actually mandatory retrofit ordinances to really address buildings like soft story or cripple wall foundations or non-ductile concrete buildings. And us as a manufacturer being able to work through kind of product innovations to make sure that there are solutions for those buildings when they have to be retrofit. And we've been really passionate supporters of the resiliency movement and being able to also think about building performance and how buildings are designed to life safety. And so as you're going through retrofit requirements, should you maybe think about what you're retrofitting to, right? Do you want to retrofit kind of to building code standard or do you want to really look at performance levels and your building can still be occupied? Do you want it to be functional, right? This idea of functional recovery. And so we've really supported organizations like the U.S. Resiliency Council and you know, efforts by different members of the California State Assembly to kind of have those options available and maybe some benefits to building owners that go that extra step. Also working with the California Earthquake Authority to help people understand the benefit of retrofitting their buildings. And so for non-ductile concrete, you know, there's this ability to strengthen existing concrete using carbon fiber. For soft story buildings, there's an opportunity to strengthen them with moment frames. And then with cripple walls, there's a huge opportunity to kind of do sound engineering practices, like making sure that your home is bolted to the foundation, that you have a clear load path, that you put plywall sheathing to really strengthen up that cripple wall level. There's a ton of resources that we've made available that are not like Simpson product centric, but just really educating, be it a homeowner or a building owner, about the benefits that kind of go beyond just meeting the regulatory manners, but, you know, a real benefit in terms of either the lifespan of the building or the performance um, during one of these hazardous events. I think that's so important too, just even for the general public with uh, so many building owners. I think the public, in my opinion, they kind of just go about it like, oh yeah, we have earthquakes all the time. Our buildings are fine. Well, the earthquake wasn't near us. Getting more publicity and having more information out to the public on why it's so important, it's a great step for sure. It's kind of like when you're getting a car and if it had a safety rating, everyone's getting like a two star, the bare minimum to pass or something like that. When they don't know that they could, hey, you could make it safer if you wanted to, because if you're owning like an office building, well, are you okay with your building being maybe potentially taken down or non-operational for three to six months or whatnot? And if they're the building owner, no, that's my building. I need to do rent. I don't want it at that level. I want it at a higher level. But, you know, a lot of the public doesn't really know that and probably not their fault. It's, I think it's our fault as an industry or maybe our responsibility as an industry to let them know and, and be out there and, and speak out about it. So I think I've read some of those guidelines as well. So it's easy to just send off to your colleagues or maybe your family members that have houses or something like that that needs a retrofit. It's hard to convince people that, you know, maintenance is 
something that you should really invest in, plan for, but it's so key to making sure that the essential infrastructure of our communities, which are our buildings, stay available, you know, even after we see some of these kind of catastrophic events. A lot of them seem to be like uh, maintenance issues, uh, you know, for the Miami, Florida one, we're not there's no official report yet on what's out, but I think we could all agree that it looked like it needed some maintenance from the pictures. And even with the the balcony collapse, that seemed to be a, a waterproofing maintenance. So it's it's really important. And some of these things that go on the news is even like the bridges. I think one where they had the bridge where the girder was, uh, those have been standing. It's the maintenance issues that are so important that maybe the public is seeing more of an importance on that since it's making the news, uh, I think they're definitely asking more questions about it. I think it's good in terms of maybe bringing more awareness, but obviously not the event itself. What advice can you give young students out there that might consider pursuing a career in the engineering industry? I would first commend them for pursuing profession in structural engineering because I really think the sky's the limit for you know really talented engineers to establish themselves and find just so many different ways of pursuing their passion of engineering. And I think also just wanting to improve their communities within structural engineering. Personally, where I found the most ability for me to grow in my career was by being involved actually in things, not only like at my workplace, but outside. And so I spent a lot of time volunteering with the Structural Engineers Association out of Southern California. And I just felt that gave me tremendous opportunities to work on committees, to be part of initiatives, to help kind of organize and create visions for events that didn't really exist at kind of my place of work, but put me in touch with an incredible network of structural engineers and mentors and kind of advocates, if you will, that helped guide my career. If it wasn't for, I think, my involvement in these industry associations and efforts to network and kind of and learn, kind of be an active learner, you know, of how the industry works, I don't think I'd be in the position I am in now because it's funny. It's, it's what I do now. It's, you know, I talk with a lot of other uh, department heads. I work with the branches. I work with our executive leadership team on strategy for the company. And so much of that, I got the experience by working with these industry associations because they're always looking for volunteers and they're always looking for people who are passionate and have the time and talent available to give. And so take advantage of those opportunities that exist and don't be afraid to say yes, you know, and when somebody asks for help or needs the support, because that inevitably, I think, can turn into a real learning opportunity and a real opportunity to develop, you know, what they call the soft skills, right? Like how well can you work with others on a team? Like how well can you lead a team? How well can you come up with an idea and have others kind of buy into your vision for what something could be? And all of that, you know, are hallmarks of a good leader. Like, do people want to work with you? Like, if they don't want to work with you, like, I don't think they'd want to work for you. And so, you know, what are you doing to make sure that you're kind of honing your leadership, people skills with the same kind of fervor and dedication that you did your technical skills. Because I think as you progress in your career and are looking to be a people manager or to run a group, right, or to open your own firm, that those are the skills that are going to help you kind of stand out from the crowd and also is such a compliment to the technical part of it. Because I took a communications class once I'm a great trainer, Melissa Marshall, you should look her up. She has a company called Present Your Science about how people can talk about you know, their technical content. 
I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something along the lines of like technical expertise and science not talked about is like talent wasted, right? Like if you're not able to communicate well what you know and what you recommend and have others agree with you. And I don't know, Matt, if you sat in, you know, on client meetings where you're trying to convince the building owner or the architect or whoever it is, the contractor, that they need to do something in a certain way. I mean, your ability to communicate that technical information, the importance of that information, the relevance of that information is as important as the technical bits itself. As much as the younger engineers can make sure that they're making time and space you know, in their lives to develop that with the same, again, fervor and passion as they do their technical skills. I think that that is a real formula for success for kind of this next generation of structural engineers coming into the workforce. That is excellent advice. And I definitely agree with that, especially the part about communication, because I think maybe students just might have the idea that you're going to do calcs all day. No, it doesn't matter what field you get into in terms of civil engineering. You're not going to get into a firm that doesn't do business. I mean, they're a firm because they do business and business involves people all the time. What you said about, paraphrase it, it's not enough to be right. As engineers, we're probably right, but that's not enough. You need to be effective. It's not enough to be right. You need to be effective. You need to learn how to communicate with those different types of clients. Just like you said, uh, what's their engineering background? Do they have any? And how can you communicate with them, the decision makers for the most part, on showing them the best way to help them out? You basically have to help them help themselves, but it doesn't help if you kind of just throw a bunch of jargon at them and then they don't know. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't know what you just said. (laughs) Exactly. It's so funny what you said about being right. So I have kind of school-age kids, they're all in elementary school. And I'm right all the time with them, but they don't buy it. So there's a lot of kind of trying to communicate ideas and intent. And it's funny, there's a book that I love that's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And there are concepts in there that are just like directly translatable to your work life, right? How can you be empathetic? How can you reflect back what people are saying? How can you understand another person's point of view but then also get them to understand yours so that you can like move towards a common goal, right? The common goal, maybe we all want to go to dinner and have our shoes on, or the common goal is we all want the client to like, you know, be successful on this project and pay us on time. I always recommend parenting books for work. I remember, you know, listening to some leadership podcasts or whatnot, but I think it, someone mentioned it eventually all boys boils down to, this is how you treat a child. And this is how you treat like with different types of people. It's kind of going back to the basics of humaning 101. We tend to forget that. It really is. And actually what it really boils down to for both kids and coworkers is like respect, right? Like if you approach somebody with respect and empathy and truly like caring about what happens to them, then you're on the right path, right? Like you're starting with that right foundation, like you were just saying, you can work together. So as long as you're starting like with good intent and wanting to help, it's a good foot forward. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to comment on was uh, your comment about joining these types of organizations, these professional organizations. I've been particularly involved in professional organizations as well. CIOS, but more of like my ASCE, I've been heavily involved in that. And I definitely agree with what you were saying about building your network. But I think more importantly, developing those leadership skills. It's basically low stakes for people that want to become managers or learning how to manage teams. That's something that you could do pretty easily and pretty low stakes by volunteering one of these professional organizations that need help and you'll get recognized for it. You'll develop those people skills that you may not develop too much at work, but you don't need that much. As an engineer, your technical skills are already like off the charts. I mean, you're already maxed out on your technical skills. You get diminishing returns, right? 
But if you just put a little bit of time into people skills or soft skills, then that's actually going to help your career a lot more because a lot of engineers don't even want to build that up. I think those skills help you out in your career exponentially. So uh, the people skills. So just a little bit of time can really help you out. Just, I mean, you're a prime example of that. So yeah, thanks for that. I just wanted to add on to what you're saying too, Matt, is that I've also heard people say that they struggle to get into manager positions because a lot of times they're looking for management experience in order to move into a manager position. And industry associations are an amazing way to kind of develop you know, manager experience, manager skills by leading a committee or an initiative or something like that. That's kind of a direct benefit to your work career path because you have the ability to really talk about like in your interview or on your resume about how you led an initiative. So. There's, there's a lot of bonuses, you know, it's, it's mutually beneficial, both for, I think, the volunteer and the organization. Thanks so much for answering those questions. Uh, I definitely learned a lot. And it was uh, great discussing about all these things that are going on in Shimshin Strong Tie and your journey. I think that's an inspiration for a lot of people and, you know, your takes on leadership and the industry going forward. So thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure talking to you, Matt. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 58, as well as any links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.